You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Thousands held protests in Melbourne and Perth on Saturday. They called on the Western Australian government to abandon the shark-culling plan announced last month. On this beach, we've had four shark attacks in the last ten years, three in the last two years. That's going to target large sharks, including the uh, vulnerable great white shark, and we believe... It's 2014 and and we're beyond that now. Protesters claim killing sharks would devastate the marine ecosystem. We are showing our respect to the ocean. Further protests are planned for next month. It just seems from then to have just steamrolled and the incidents are just getting closer and closer together. What do you do with a plague of rats? You've got to get rid of them, don't you? That's what it takes so that we don't have another death or or shark mauling amongst our community, then so be it. I don't see a problem with that. You know, human life is more important. Welcome to another episode for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In Part 1, The Man-Eater of Matawan, we covered the 1916 shark attacks in New Jersey that awakened America to the fact that sharks were something to be aware of when it comes to the ocean. And in sharing this story, which dealt almost exclusively with a rogue great white, we promised that in Part 2 we would accomplish the following. To document the efforts of researchers, marine biologists, and environmentalists with regard to restoring a badly depleted shark population and explain why that's important in maintaining the balance of marine life. Two, to bring you up to date on shark attacks within the past few years. Three, to let you know what methods are being used to protect swimmers in various hotspots throughout the world, beginning with the coastal beaches of California and the east coast of the U.S. and extending to Hawaii, Australia, and South Africa. And four, how to increase your odds of survival on your next beach trip all with the intended consequence of sharing knowledge and hopefully removing any fears you have about enjoying any of the world's oceans. We welcome ZipRecruiter as today's sponsor and thank them for their support. They take no sides in the oncoming us-versus-them issue. 
Before we begin, I can tell you at the outset that the Us versus Them title we chose is quite appropriate because the topic of what to do about increasing shark attacks has ignited a storm of controversy around the world, centered, of course, in places where shark attacks are most prevalent. On one side of the controversy, you have what some would describe as the eco-warriors, those who believe that humans are destroying the earth and its ecosystem and that nothing should stand in the way of restoring that ecosystem to its primal state before it became the victim of the onslaught of human activity. There are all levels of eco-warriors, from the jump-in-front-of-a-harpoon fanatic to those just eager to side with the group that says we want a healthy earth, and if your cause helps that, fine, which is always the safest and most popular group to be in, and the path of least resistance. I'm not inferring that eco-warriors are bad. In fact, thanks to them, we're much more aware in recent years of the negative effects that pollution, improper farming techniques, pesticides, tree cutting, overfishing, and a host of other human activities have on our earth. And that's a good thing. We humans are all eco-warriors to some degree if we care about the world we live in, and many people do. But some of us don't wear it on our sleeves and prefer to take issues on one by one, using common sense and facts, not emotion, or social pressure, to arrive at the solution. Then, of course, there are the hunter-warriors like Quint in Jaws. Bad, bad, bad boys that rock the eco-warriors' world and give them something to be angry at. In this story, it often comes down to saving human lives or shark lives, us or them, and you will all be offered a middle ground, so hang in there. So where are we here? Trying to cover both sides of the issue for the purpose of providing both information and entertainment. Informing you so you can enjoy all the benefits of the ocean. And there are many. And letting you know that your next beach trip will be safe and fun if you just follow a few rules of precaution and choose the right beaches. Shark populations are increasing again, reads a March 2017 article from Adam Wagner, published by the Sun Journal in New Bern, North Carolina, who attributes this increase to a fishery management plan initiated by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also called NOAA, which put enforcement behind a plan to reduce overfishing of sharks within U.S. waters, and the U.S., surrounded by ocean and gulf on three sides, and home to most shark species, is a haven for shark research. The subheader reads, Fishermen targeting sharks in the 70s led to the decline. The article explains that shark levels had dropped to a dangerously low level in the early 1990s due to overfishing and lack of any management. At that time, NOAA, realizing the need for a plan, implemented a fishing management plan for sharks and started monitoring them. The results have been slow in coming due to the fact that sharks reproduce at a slower rate than many other types of fish and the larger sharks even slower. But teams of researchers compiling data from different studies are now seeing an increase in shark populations, and a big increase at that. Another article dated March 2, 2017, from Sport Fishing Magazine, titled Shark Populations Increasing Around the Southeast, praises the National Marine Fisheries Service Plan that was enacted in 1993 and helps to spread the news that now almost all species of shark involved in the study are back. Having more sharks in the ocean, says Rob Latour, a William & Mary Virginia Institute of Marine Sciences professor who was interviewed for the article just credited, said, and we're paraphrasing, 
that more sharks in the ocean is likely a positive sign for biodiversity, adding that in years the sharks struggled. The species they hunt, like rays and skates, have flourished. But now, with sharks back in the picture, the ecosystem is returning to its former state. Sharks are viewed as being the apex, or top predators of the food web, Latour said, and their reemergence should be viewed as a positive. He also added that vacationers are more likely to have an encounter, and there's that word again, but that in the grand scheme of things, those same swimmers have a greater chance of getting in a car accident on their way home from work. We searched a number of other articles dealing with the increase in shark counts, at least as measured here in the U.S., and they relate a very similar message. A repeated search is asking why the increase in sharks is healthy for a balanced oceanic ecosystem has turned up very little, which sets off a natural skepticism. We're just left to assume that of course it's better for all of us, but not to ask why. The only two correlations I could find was a study of the Northwest Atlantic Ocean claiming that a decrease in apex predators such as sharks was possibly leading indirectly to a drop in shellfish populations notably scallops. A different report from a different source showed that with a decrease in sharks, a rise in sea turtle populations was occurring, the sea turtle being a favorite food of predator sharks. And if you're a turtle lover, that's a good thing. There are many, many articles out there telling us why the increase in sharks is good news, including this one. It was written by author George Burgess, who is the director of the Florida Program for Shark Research and the International Shark Attack File, the ISAF, which are both headquartered at University of Florida's Florida Museum of Natural History. He is the go-to guy for media inquiries on shark attacks and shark research, and he is definitely on the side of the sharks when it comes to any debate. In an article titled, Why Shark Populations Are Growing and Here's Why That's Good News, dated July 22, 2015, from a blog called theconversation.com. Burgess begins with the obvious. We hailed the comeback of the American eagle and the alligator, but no one is applauding the return of the great white shark. He mentions viral videos of pro surfer Mick Fanning fighting off an attacking shark. Then he dives in and says that a healthy shark population is important because we depend on a healthy ocean for our very lives. Burgess continues, even if you live far inland, he says, you still depend on our ocean being a healthy one. And he says, sharks are a visible sign that our oceans are healthy. He admits that we don't know what would happen if they disappeared, and admits that he feels compassion for the victims of the 2015 years' fatal attacks on the East Coast, but closes by saying that we're going to have to accept that we are guests in the shark's domain every time we enter the water, and it's going to take a massive change in mindset on our parts. More sharks he says is, quote, money in the bank for a sound ecosystem. At this point, after reading a number of articles, at least a dozen, praising the rise in shark populations, I had seen enough and couldn't read any further. Okay, I get the point. But all the graphs are telling us that there has been a real spike in shark attacks and unprovoked fatalities accompanying the comeback of sharks. Other graphs explain that in certain countries, shark attacks are rising not as a result of shark populations resurging, but as a result of populations increasing. More people in the water, more attacks. So which one is right? To get to the answer, I'm giving you all round-trip tickets to one of the most beautiful resort destinations in the world, 
the French island of Reunion, which is located east off the southern portion of Africa, due east of Zanzibar and Mozambique, in the huge expanse of sea called the Indian Ocean. Reunion is a volcanic island complete with beautiful lagoons, tropical forests, desert, and some of the most pristine beaches and mountain landscape you will ever see. Their website lays out the entire picture, including a description of all the activities available, which are many. But one thing is missing. It doesn't list surfing or scuba diving, unless I missed it, or show any pictures of people enjoying the endless waves that wash upon the island's beautiful shores. Yet any surfer worth his or her salt will tell you that the island of Reunion is a surfer's paradise, maybe the best in the world. The population increases about 1.5% per year here. But there's been a huge increase in shark fatalities. The tiny island of Reunion has become one of the epicenters for the us versus them controversy. There are two beaches on the island protected by anti-shark nets. The rest is unprotected. In a recent article from ibtimes.com titled Shark Attacks 2017, After Reunion Island Deaths, France Must Kill Sharks, World's Best Surfers Argue, written by Christina Silva. She quotes a Guardian article which says that some of the world's best surfers are calling on the French government to kill sharks near Reunion Island after an eighth person was killed there in six years. Kelly Slater, an 11-time world champion, and Jeremy Flores, a surfer who grew up on the island, said French officials must do more to curb attacks from aggressive bull sharks. I won't be popular for saying this, but there needs to be a serious call on Reunion, and it should happen every day said Slater. There's a clear imbalance happening in the ocean there. If the whole world had these rates of attack, nobody would use the ocean, and millions of people would be dying like this. The French government needs to figure this out ASAP. Sharks represent a major crisis for Reunion, located east of Madagascar and home to about 850,000 people. Surfing is banned across the island, except for on two beaches guarded by anti-shark nets. But because the island's waves are known as the best in the world, surfers still brave the local waters. In all, 22 people have been the victim of shark attacks near the island since 2001. The animals are known by local surfers as war machines. Part of the problem, critics argue, is that hunting sharks on reunion for food is banned because their flesh is contaminated with a toxin that can cause death. That policy has allowed the animals to thrive, locals say. To be sure, shark attacks are a growing global problem. In 2015, there were 98 attacks, including six deaths, a world record. In 2014, there were only 72 attacks. The uptick was driven in part by warm weather from El Nino and global warming, according to officials. Which officials? The article didn't say. For Reunion Island surfers, the recent call to cull sharks came after Alexander Nosik, a 26-year-old bodyboarder, was killed just weeks before this episode was written by a shark attack. The animal bit through a major artery in his leg. Officials are quick to add that he was surfing in a zone where water activities were banned, which is almost all of the island. Things are getting really serious, and we're tired of crying for our brothers, said Flores. People are dying one after another, and for some this sounds normal, but it really isn't. French officials already catch and kill about 100 sharks a year near the island, 
and conservationists argue killing more sharks would hurt the local environment. How killing more sharks would hurt the environment isn't discussed in the article. It's insane, said Ken Collins, senior research fellow at the United Kingdom's National Oceanography Center in Southampton. There's a hierarchy in the natural world for a reason. If you kill all the sharks and the lions, the world would be a poorer place. Who has a God-given right to be in the ocean? The sharks or the surfers? I side with the sharks, says Ken Collins. And there is the crux of the argument. One side says, If I have killer snakes living in my backyard or pool, I'm going to kill them. If I'm camping in a wolf's habitat and a rabid wolf attacks my campsite with his mind on killing, I'm going to shoot it. Not all wolves, just the ones that want to kill. If I live on an island and want to swim or surf at the beaches, I'm going to remove any sharp glass, old landmines, and any killer sharks that threaten my life. The good sharks can stay and will still have a balanced ecosystem. And you've already heard what the other side says. There are so many sharks in the water, it's traumatic, said Gilbert Pouzet, 55, who has surfed in Reunion for 30 years. Sometimes I go down to the waves and I'm not sure whether to go in the water or not. 80% of the time, I go back home. Most of the time, they strike from the side and take your hip and leg. They sever the femoral artery so you bleed to death in two minutes. The tiger shark will sometimes take an arm or a piece of leg and go away. But the bull shark becomes mad and finishes you off. When the bull sharks attack, they come to kill. In the article, an in-depth look at reunion shark attacks at DeeperBlue.com, surfer Mike Coots, a shark attack survivor, says that science shows that culling doesn't work. There is some evidence to support that, at least in Hawaii, which implemented a shark culling program in the years from 1959 to 1976, which reduced shark population by 4,668 sharks. The incidence of shark attacks remained the same, said the Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology. So after reading this and being of curious mind, I went to sharkattackdata.com and searched Hawaii shark attacks since 1900. After 1980, the number of shark attacks there has increased slowly. But after the federal conservation programs were initiated in 1993, the number of shark attacks started ramping up considerably. The figures given up through 2015 showed even bigger increases in 2012 and 2013. It was time to see if there was a link between increases in shark fatalities and increases in government programs designed to save the sharks from overfishing. A 2001 article titled, The Jaws of Government, Are the Feds to Blame for Shark Attacks? written by Sean Page in August of 2001, postulates that more than mere happenstance may lie behind the sudden, shocking return of the shark. In a curious juxtaposition of trends, shark attacks in 2000 reached record levels in the world, and the U.S., and in Florida, even as scientists and government officials are claiming that the animals are being chased toward extinction by fishermen looking for thrill kills. Mr. Page writes, I can say with confidence that shark attacks in the U.S. have increased dramatically since 1993, which is when the federal government began mandating deep cuts in the number of sharks that could be caught for sport or profit. A look at the shark attack stats for 1994 show a marked increase the year after the regulations were signed into law. 
In particular, an ISAF Great White Fatalities chart showing increases by decade averaged about a 10 to 12% increase per decade beginning in the 30s. Then suddenly, in the 1990s, suddenly jumps with an over 30% increase. Right in tune with the 1993 regulations limiting shark fishing, especially those species, including great whites, which were considered endangered at that time. So it looks like, at least from the statistics, that Sean's research is in line. Shark tracking is a great way to monitor the movement and location of sharks. One great website that will give you a host of links to tracking sites is trackingsharks.com, and we placed a link to this in your show notes. Shark tagging is getting very popular. In fact, you can donate and travel with some of these groups, which will be a great experience. And by tagging sharks, we can see where they are and where they've been. On some, you can arrange to get a ping if you have one close by. That's just one way to stay informed while you're on that next beach trip. That's trackingsharks.com. And that'll guide you to other sites like sharksmart.com, the Western Australia Shark Tracker, the Dorsal Shark Reporting app at iTunes and Android, OSEARCH, that's O-C-E-A-R-C-H, and the Atlantic Shark Conservancy, both of which have apps available as well. I hope you contact these folks and help with their programs. At the same time, one purpose of this episode is to inform you so you can be aware of both sides of the issue, so you never lose touch of the fact that the safety of humans, not just sharks, in the water is vital. I say this because everywhere I look, every article, pro or con, regurgitates the same line, the sharks as victims line, which goes like this. Humans are much more dangerous to sharks, which tend to end up in soup or medicine. The articles remind readers before trotting out the usual statistical comparisons between shark attacks, lightning strikes, deadly mosquito bites, dog bites, snake bites, and as one writer added with a touch of sarcasm, deaths from Christmas tree light electrocutions. As history tells us, the federal government in 1993 began managing the U.S. commercial shark fishery. You can say, well, that's just the U.S., but they cover a huge area basically including everything that's pulled out of the water, from Hawaii to the Caribbean, and all points in between. And the U.S. accounts for 53% of the shark attacks worldwide. So when I use their figures, I'm not using the B-list. Since 1993, strict limits have been placed on the number of sharks that can be taken from U.S. waters by both commercial and sport fishermen. The commercial shark fishing season has been shortened accordingly. 4,000-pound trip limits made it a losing business proposition for the largest U.S. shark boats, ensuring that sharking became a small boat industry. Commercial shark permits issued by the feds were cut tenfold from around 2,000 before 1999 to around 200 in 2010. And nearly 20 types of sharks, including great whites, some types of makos, and Caribbean reef sharks have been declared completely off-limits to commercial harvest. Also jumping on the shark protection bandwagon, Florida in 1992 instituted a strict one shark per person or two shark per boat maximum bag limit on sharks in state waters, which extend three miles from the beach on the Atlantic Ocean and nine miles from the shoreline on the Gulf of Mexico. Gill netting and longlining, two common techniques for snaring sharks, were also banned. 
Though sharks are still caught in state waters, these restrictions severely reduced the number taken closest to shore. This has effectively created a sanctuary in the area where human-animal interactions are most prone to occur, and which at least one type of shark famous for its attacks upon humans, the bull shark, is known to frequent. All these tactics have resulted in a steep drop in the number of sharks caught in U.S. coastal waters. We promised you a report on the past year's shark attacks. 2016 had a record number of worldwide shark attacks and bites, 107, which surpassed the previous record of 98 set in 2015 by 9. However, the total number of fatalities is down from 9 worldwide in 2015 to 8 in 2016. Again, the 2016 leader for shark bites was the Sunshine State of Florida with a total of 34 bites. 13 bites happened in the new Smyrna Beach vicinity, a region known as the shark bite capital of the world. The area is a hotbed for surfers, bait fish, and sharks. And 2016 marks 23 years since the sweeping legislation of 93 that protected many types of sharks from overharvesting. That's a full generation cycle and a half for the big sharks. We should be seeing huge numbers of attacks within the coming years as the shark counts increase exponentially. Hawaii had a total of seven shark attack bites and one unconfirmed incident, five of which occurred off Maui. California had two incidents involving great white sharks. Maria Corksmaros was bitten while swimming, but survived and is now training for triathlons. Tyler McQuillan encountered a great white shark while spearfishing. His mementos consisted of a few broken toes and an intense video recording of the incident. One rare report came from Oregon. In October, 29-year-old trauma nurse Joseph Tanner was bitten by a great white shark while surfing. He was able to make it back to shore and directed his own first aid. Unfortunately, there were eight fatalities for 2016, three of which were in Australia. Queensland lost Stephen Fozzie Foster, who was diving off Mission Beach in February. Mission Beach also had seven other shark attack bites reported during the year. Western Australia claimed three bites and two fatalities, scuba diver Tim Roberts and surfer Ben Gehring. Swimmer Nicole Malignan and kite surfer David Jewell were both killed off New Caledonia, where three other bites were reported. Diver Maika Tabua was killed in Fiji in March. Two fishermen also lost their lives, Linaldo Guadino de Brito off the coast of Brazil and a man only identified as Julius in Mozambique. Most shark attacks are simple, hit-and-run attacks where the shark makes an investigative bite and then realizes the person is not a food item and leaves the area. However, the size of the investigative shark can mean the difference between life and death. A large shark can inflict significantly more damage to a human, not only because of its larger jaw size, but also because of the amount of pressure the bite can generate. When asked by one writer if federal regulation had something to do with the increases in attacks, Lee Schlesinger, a spokesman for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, was adamant in his denials. We're in the business of rebuilding the shark population. Our job is the protection of these animals, declared Schlesinger, obviously appalled by the suggestion. Sharks are overfished. We are killing too many sharks. There's your answer. What can or should be done for the protection of people if rebuilding current shark stocks leads to a future increase in attacks? We have no evidence that our management of sharks has anything to do with this. 
Schlesinger said, of the recent attacks. But if our commission sees this as a problem, we'll just have to deal with it then. Right now, we're looking at it in terms of the shark. At least one government science interviewed in Mr. Page's article questions the premise and goal of the federal shark stock rebuilding efforts and knows firsthand how politicized they've become. But he spoke on condition of anonymity as his views have not been well received within the NMFS. Shark stocks probably are lower now than before the 1980s shark fishing boom, this expert says. There is little question that shark fishing abuses, including finning, in which the fin is removed and the rest of the fish discarded, were at one time prevalent. Many of those embroiled in the debate are less than objective observers, according to this insider. Many absurd statements have been made about sharks, but the scientists are being paid to advocate particular positions and to make inflammatory remarks. So how did the once reviled shark become a cause celeb? There was a little niche in academia who were looking for some kind of horse to ride, so they got onto this issue and worked it until they elevated it in the public eye, the scientist explained. From there, eco-politics, rather than sound science, took over. The National Marine Fishery Service had a political problem on its hands, so it took steps to try to limit escalation as much as it could. To placate potential critics, the government's internal working groups long had included representatives from outside advocacy organizations, says the insider. But over the years, those outside groups have exercised increasing influence over the scientific process and policy outcomes. NMFS is not a scientific organization, but a political organization, he says. It might look like a science organization to the public because it has scientists on a staff, but it's not because its administration serves at the mercy of politicians. When this person began voicing doubts about the science behind shark stock assessments and regulations, he says he was frozen out of the process. I was not controllable, so they kept me out of it, he said. He added that fisheries decisions formerly made at the laboratory level in accord with the best available science are now made in Washington, D.C. I feel that hard evidence is lacking that Atlantic sharks are in any serious trouble, much less going extinct says the scientist. Any lack of abundance occurring along the U.S. Atlantic coast isn't necessarily bad, he adds, because sharks are assuredly dangerous, particularly in coastal areas where people frequently enjoy water sports, as recent increases in shark attacks demonstrate. In another article dated July 18, 2015, in The Australian, written by Sydney reporter Fred Paul, entitled Shark Culling versus Shark Attacks, has our admiration gone too far? Paul writes, Great white sharks have been protected in all Australian waters since 1998. The first male great whites born into that protection reached maturity 8 to 10 years ago, and their female counterparts started maturing in 2010. In the meantime, the surviving juveniles born before 1998 presumably also mated. The consequences of this protection arguably are being felt in human casualties which are increasing dramatically. There have been 15 fatalities in Australia since August 2010 and 51 injuries since 2012, which is more than triple the average for the past 50 years, according to the Australian shark attack file kept by the Taranga Conservation Society. Unofficially, there may be more. When people go missing at sea, as 25-year-old Martin Tan did off Mullaloo Beach, Perth, 
In 2013, their fate is not always recorded as shark-related, even if the missing person is known to be a good swimmer. Of the known fatal attacks, at least five were, or were suspected to be, perpetrated by great whites. You don't need to be a statistician to suspect a correlation. Some are asking if it's time to lift the great whites' protected status. Have great whites, and for that matter, tigers and bulls, which make up some of the other fatal attackers, reached numbers that may require more diligent management? Surfers and fishermen across the country have been reporting that the size and abundance of large sharks are noticeably higher than they've been in some places for 30 years. Newcastle Westpac Rescue Helicopter Service Chairman Cliff Marsh said in January that there'd been an explosion in the population of great whites in his area. So why don't researchers have documented evidence of this? Has the admiration of large sharks gone too far? Yes, they play a role in maintaining ecological balance in the ocean, but these days we see them commonly described as beautiful, mysterious, and majestic. Many surfers, too, have become big supporters of sharks. When father of two, Chris Boyd, was taken by a pair of great whites at Kawaramup, Western Australia, in 2013, South African big-wave surfer Grant Twiggy Baker dived into a debate on a surf website. There's 5 billion humans and only 5,000 great white sharks on the earth, he said. So what species is more important to protect? A few less humans won't affect the balance of nature on the planet, but a few less sharks will, a great deal. I surf in some of the sharkiest places on the planet, in South Africa, and personally couldn't think of a better way to go than at the hand of nature's most magnificent creature. Two arguments are routinely put forward whenever a person is killed or injured by a large shark. First, the victim entered the shark's territory. Second, the statistics of an attack are almost invisibly low compared with, say, a fatal attack by a malaria-bearing mosquito, which kills more than a million people a year. These two responses are more connected than they seem. Large sharks are described as apex predators, a jargonistic term that means they sit at the top of the food chain. This is not always true. Until a mere 2.6 million years ago, 20-meter-long megalodons ate great whites for breakfast. Neither is it true today. Since the demise of the megalodon, another species has developed tools that significantly reduce the odds in its favor. These tools are available at most fishing and diving shops. But humans are not considered part of the natural world. Wherever they live, they manage the environment to suit themselves for comfort or survival, but never as part of the natural order of things. Part of that environmental management includes killing mosquitoes. Here, current technology is inadequate. Malaria is unstoppable in many places, and dengue is on the rise. In 2003, evolutionary biologist Olivia Judson made a startling proposal. Speciesicide of the Anopheles mosquito, which spreads malaria. Her rationale was persuasive. There's nothing sinister about extinction. Species go extinct all the time. The disappearance of a few species, while a pity, does not bring a whole ecosystem crashing down. We're not left with a wasteland every time a species vanishes. Removing one species sometimes causes shifts in the populations of other species. But different need not mean worse. Mosquitoes are not perceived as awesome, beautiful, or majestic like sharks so Judson was able to make her proposal without being vilified. While no one is proposing speciesicide, 
Is it worth considering an extension of Judson's logic to managing large sharks? Despite the ethos that underlines most scientific research and popular sentiment towards nature, not all change is for the worse. Nature itself is constantly changing, and people who wish to manage their own environment, even for recreational purposes such as swimming, surfing, and diving, are not automatically on the wrong side. If you oppose culling, that's fine. Knock yourself out. Go swimming with them if you like. But spare me the faux sympathy next time someone is killed. These deaths are not necessary. And again, that's attributed to Fred Paul, writing for The Australian. So what is being done to curb shark attacks at the world's hotspots? Starting with the tiny island of Reunion, authorities reacted to a spate of five attacks in 2013 by banning surfing and swimming anywhere on Reunion Island, except for the island's protected lagoons. This led to an outcry to do something to protect the beaches. So in 2015, the authorities erected anti-shark nets at two of the island's beaches, Bucan Cano and Roches Noir. In 2016, a French tourist lost an arm and a foot to a killer shark at Bucan Canoe. As it turned out, the net had a hole in it. Did the shark do it? Or did an environmentalist activist do it? People asked. Activists have been known to sabotage shark necks because they kill other fish, and sometimes sharks. Baited drumlines have also been used in Reunion, the purpose of these lines being to catch and kill as many sharks as possible. Anchored drums are positioned around the outer perimeter of a swimming area and connected by netting. At points near the drums, baited shark hooks are employed, which catch sharks, which are often killed. Critics of this method say that baited hooks actually attract more sharks to the inshore areas, an unprovable presumption at best. They also say that drumlines are cruel and ineffective. However, wherever drumlines are used, baited or not, there is a drop in attacks. So they work. The only obstacle to using them to protect lives is environmentalists. In places like South Africa, another hot spot for killer sharks, shark spotting teams are used to provide an early warning system for sharks. In places with murky waters, like Reunion, however, this method isn't effective. New technologies include the Shark Safe Barrier, which uses a barrier of rigid pipes to repel sharks using a strong magnetic field. All shark species have what is called the ampullae of Lorenzini, small, gel-filled receptacles located on their snouts that are particularly receptive to magnetic impulses. Wrist and ankle bands are currently marketed that claim to turn sharks away using magnetic fields. I have found pros and cons on these, but with lots of good reviews out there, it's definitely worth looking into. In Australia, new nylon eco-shark barriers are proving effective. Made from environmentally safe nylon, the openings in the net are too small and rigid to trap sharks or other marine animals. This net protects people using the water by creating a completely enclosed swimming area and is something any community worried about sharks should look into. So those are the facts. Sharks are making a comeback. The researchers are very happy. And you, with two weeks booked on the wide beaches of the Grand Strand, would like to know if you can wade out in the water this year without losing an arm or a leg. Actually, unless you're living in a shark hotspot, you are going to be fine. We'll get to those hotspots in a moment. 
I will say this in caps. Your chances of getting attacked are extremely low, especially if you're not in a shark hotspot. Knowing what to do and being cautious reduces the odds of encounters even more in your favor. Here are 10 of the world's hotspots for sharks. Number one, New Smyrna Beach in Volusia County, Florida. Ponce de Leon Inlet, Florida. Perth in Western Australia. Second Beach, Port St. John's in Africa. Reunion in the Indian Ocean. Makina Beach, Maui. Boa Regime, Brazil. Sharm El Hooch, Egypt. Surf Beach, Vandenberg, California. And some of the beaches off Sydney, Australia. Getting specific on California. There's a photo of a warning sign at Stinson Beach with this message. August 26, 1998, a person was attacked by a shark here at Stinson Beach. The attack occurred in five feet of water within 50 yards of shore. All persons going in the ocean should be aware of the potential of shark attacks close to shore along the entire length of the beach. Stinson Beach is located 2.5 miles east-southeast of Bolinas, California, about a 30-minute drive from the Golden Gate Bridge on Highway 1. It's a clean, beautiful beach and has been used as the backdrop for a number of movies. The little community, a home to artists and wealthy, has included notables such as Jerry Garcia and Steve Miller. And they say that Janis Joplin's ashes, some of them anyway, were scattered here. Stinson Beach is a popular day trip for people in the San Francisco Bay Area and for tourists visiting Northern California. Although most visitors arrive by private car, Stinson Beach is linked to Marin City by a daily bus service, and the network of hiking trails around Mount Tamalpai also reaches the town. In 2002, the surfer was attacked by a 12 to 15 foot long great white shark while surfing off Stinson Beach. The young man survived, but received more than 100 stitches to close his wounds. The attack was the second in Stinson Beach and the 13th in Marin County since 1952. In 1998, Jonathan Catherine was attacked by a great white shark while paddling into the ocean. His injury from the shark bite required over 600 stitches. The surf off Stinson Beach is within an area known as the Red Triangle, where there have been an unusually high number of shark attacks. The Red Triangle is the colloquial name of a roughly triangle-shaped region off the coast of Northern California, extending from Bodega Bay, north of San Francisco, out slightly beyond the Farallon Islands, and down to the Big Sur region, south of Monterey. The area has a very large population of marine mammals, such as elephant seals, harbor seals, sea otters, and sea lions, which are favored meals of great white sharks. Around 38% of recorded great white shark attacks on humans in the United States have occurred within the Red Triangle, 11% of the worldwide total. The area encompasses the beaches of the heavily populated San Francisco Bay Area, and many people enjoy surfing, windsurfing, swimming, and diving in these waters. Enjoy, but use caution. And for Florida, accurate Florida shark facts will reduce your fears on the Florida beaches. Let's face it, ever since the movie Jaws hit the screen in June of 1975, our fear of sharks has increased geometrically. It seems like every visitor to the Florida beaches asks, 
Now, are there many sharks out in that water? You really don't need to have an unreasonable fear of a shark attack during your Florida beach vacation. First of all, yes, there are sharks in all the ocean waters off the Florida coast, but they are not 30-foot great white sharks, and the incidence of a shark attack is extremely remote. Even though it's been said that anyone who swims in the ocean has been within 10 yards of a shark once in their life, millions of people are in the Gulf every day, and the only shark they ever see is in the Clearwater Marine Aquarium. Shark attacks along the entire coastline of the Florida beaches averages only about 20 in the whole year, although there were 32 reported in Florida in 2007. The majority of shark attacks on Florida beaches occur on the Atlantic Ocean side in Volusia County. Daytona Beach and New Smyrna Beach are big surfing destinations in that area. Most shark attacks occur between sandbars, and that's a good thing to recognize anywhere. It's not real smart to swim out past the first sandbar on each beach you visit. There's usually a big drop-off on the other side, and this is where the sharks feed. Mathematicians figure you have about a one in a million chance of being bitten by a shark while swimming along the Florida beaches. There are several things you can do to help you feel more safe swimming in the ocean during your Florida beach vacation. Just like you have to be vigilant during stingray season on Florida beaches, there are some specific behaviors you need to keep in mind. Do not enter the water if bleeding from a large open wound or if menstruating. Don't wear shiny jewelry in the water because the reflected light looks like the sheen of fish scales to a shark. Don't swim at night. It's best to get out before twilight. This is when the sharks feed. You do not have to be out on the sandbar to experience a beautiful Florida sunset. That's why we have beach bars. This shark fact should be pretty evident. If you see lots of fish, like mullet or bait fish, swimming and jumping out of the water, that usually means a bigger predator is in the area looking to make a meal out of them. Get out of the water till they pass. If you notice a lot of seabirds diving to feed, that means there's plenty of food available, and a real big fish will be attracted to this activity. Don't swim or surf near the jetties of passes, openings from the ocean back into a bay, like Blind Pass or John's Pass. The water runs real fast in those openings and carries lots of food for sharks to eat. Don't stand out in the water and throw food, like chicken, up to the seabirds. Sharks love food they don't have to work for. This is really stupid. Stick near others when out in the water. Sharks stay away from lots of activity. Don't stand and fish in the water off the beach. There are plenty of piers, docks, and jetties to fish from. And a few other facts. Bull sharks are the predators most prevalent in waters off Florida beaches. They are big, territorial, and aggressive. They are responsible for almost all Florida shark attacks. Many scientists see it as the most dangerous shark in the world, and they inhabit just about the entire world. They grow to about 11 feet long and live between 12 to 18 years. They like to feast on stingrays and seabirds. Keep that one in mind. Although shark attacks are extremely rare on Florida beaches, this doesn't mean you should go brain dead when in the water on your Florida beach vacation. You can be vigilant with these shark facts, but you don't have to be paralyzed with fear. And here's how to survive a shark attack. And this is posted in the show notes. Shark attacks happen only rarely, but when they do, severe and sometimes fatal injuries commonly result. Scientists don't believe sharks attack humans to eat us, Rather, they bite into our flesh because they're curious to find out what kind of animal we are, kind of like how dogs like to sniff new friends, only a lot more deadly. 
Staying out of shark habitats is the surest way to avoid getting hurt. But if you've accidentally wandered into shark-infested waters, you've got to have a plan in place. Number one, don't take your eyes off the shark. Sharks have several different attack methods. Sometimes they swim right up and have at it. Sometimes they circle for a while before lunging. And sometimes they sneak up from behind for a surprise attack. To be able to defend against the shark, you must know where it is. So make every effort to watch the animal, even as you're working out your escape. Two, stay calm and don't make sudden movements. When you first spot the shark, chances are it will swim away without bothering you. You cannot outswim a shark, so trying to sprint to safety may not be your best option, unless you're already very close to shore. It's important to keep your wits about you so you can continuously appraise the situation and figure out how to get to safety. Move slowly toward the shore or your boat. Choose whichever is closest. Don't thrash your arms or kick or splash while you swim. Do not block the shark's path if you're standing between the shark and the open ocean. Move away. Don't turn your back on the shark as you move. Remember, it's important to keep the shark in view. 3. Get into a defensive position. If you can't get out of the water right away, try to reduce the shark's possible angle of attack. If you're in shallow enough water, keep your feet on the ground. Slowly back up against a reef, piling, or rock outcropping, if you're lucky enough to have one nearby, so that the shark can't circle around behind you. This way you only have to defend sharks in front of you. If you're diving near the shore, you may need to descend to find cover. Look for a reef or rock on the bottom of the ocean. In open water, get back-to-back with another swimmer or diver so that you can see and defend against an attack from any direction. 4. Hit the shark in the face in the gills. Playing dead won't deter an aggressive shark. Your best bet if attacked is to make the shark see you as a strong, credible threat. Usually a hard blow to the shark's gills, eyes, or snout will cause it to retreat. These are really the only vulnerable areas on a shark. If you have a spear gun or pole, use it. A sharp object is a good way to inflict enough pain to scare away the shark. Aim for the head, specifically the eyes or the gills. If you don't have a weapon, improvise. Use any inanimate object if you have anything available to ward off the shark. If you have nothing around you, use your own body. Aim for the shark's eyes, gills, or snout, the end of its nose. Fight with your fists, elbows, knees, and feet. Keep fighting if the shark persists. Hit the eyes and gills repeatedly with sharp, hard jabs. Don't wind up before hitting since this doesn't provide extra force underwater. You can also claw at the eyes and the gills. Keep doing this until the shark lets you go and swims away. Lastly, call for help. It has been noted that porpoises and dolphins have developed a system of defense against sharks by ramming them at high speeds. On the East Coast, when we see dolphins swimming in the waters off the beach, we know that sharks will not be near, and it's okay to venture further out. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that is the general opinion. A Mythbusters episode on the Discovery Network asked the same question just a few years ago, but the answer wasn't definitive. Open water swimmers around the world, especially channel swimmers and marathon swimmers, often tell newcomers that when dolphins or porpoise are near them in the open water, there is no need to fear sharks. It is often said to be a sign of good luck and protection to have dolphins or porpoises nearby. 
The belief is that sharks fear dolphins and porpoises that can easily defend themselves against them and will, in turn, protect swimmers, their mammalian friends. Experienced escort pilots of channel swimmers throughout the Pacific, from the Catalina Channel to the Hawaiian Islands, also back up this understanding. In retrospect, state fishing restrictions, some would argue, have gone overboard to protect predator sharks, and in the case of Florida, they completely protect 25 species of shark, including the great white and the tiger sharks, two of the three species most responsible for attacks. Bull sharks over 54 inches in Florida are limited to one per day per person, yet Florida waters are, by all reports, teeming with bull sharks. Why such restrictions, you ask? The debate continues, and we've seen both sides, with those who want to protect sharks, believing that sharks are necessary to the survival of the ocean's fragile ecosystem on one side, and those who favor whatever means are necessary to save human lives on the other. Actually, there is a middle ground for both sides, maybe. Nets that do not entrap marine life, do not impose a threat to healthy water environment by decomposing, and that do stop sharks from entering, like the new hard nylon nets mentioned earlier, are now on the market. They don't require baiting. All they do is keep sharks out. Maybe they keep turtles from coming up to the beach to lay their eggs, in which case organizations like South Africa's SharkAngels.org, who remind us that more people die from dog bites than shark bites, will fight against these new nylon nets as well, arguing that the ocean is the shark's home and not ours. I checked their website, and although they have a long argument against nets, they don't mention the new net designs. Then there are the new magnetic barriers, which further testing will prove to be effective or not. Then we'll have to have honest research to tell us how much harvesting will be needed to keep shark populations in check so they don't consume their food supply faster than their numbers can handle and end up turning on each other, which no one, scratch that, few people want to see happen. When areas become overrun to the point where no humans are safe in the water and huge shark populations begin the depletion of entire populations of turtles, dolphins, and other marine life, it may require a new look at whether we're trying to preserve a balanced marine ecosystem or just protect sharks. Some programs, left unchecked, can do more damage than good. Food for thought. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network, which includes 1001 classic short stories and tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, and can be found anywhere great podcasts are found, including Stitcher.com, Podbay.fm, Apple Podcast App. We appreciate the reviews you give us at iTunes, and you're stopping by Facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes every now and then to post a message. Thank you so much. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.